Hello, I'm Luke Turner. Welcome to Why, the podcast diving deep to unravel a question, a conundrum, or one of those bizarre thoughts that keeps us up at night. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a mysterious, invisible energy binds everything together, from a blade of grass to entire planets. This is, of course, the Force, the spiritual element that underpins George Lucas's film saga, Star Wars. In the right hands, as a child I was always a Jedi, not a Sith, my name is Luke after all, the Force can be used to control minds, levitate and move objects. Who didn't try out their Jedi powers as a kid, reaching out towards a TV remote, focusing really hard in the hope that perhaps it might move through the air towards them? To do this, you have to be at one with the Force, and so at one with the remote control. Does this mean the remote control has an energy, even a consciousness? The idea of consciousness being threaded through everything is not confined to science fiction. A theory called panpsychism dictates that consciousness might extend outside our own minds and into all the matter in the universe. Today on Why, we're asking, is the force really with us? Physics tells us what matter does, but it doesn't really tell us what matter is. And that leaves open a hole in science, as it were, in which we can place consciousness. Philip Goff is Professor of Philosophy at Durham University. Even a final theory of physics would be just a set of rules and equations and wouldn't be able to tell us what breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe. So for the panpsychist, it's consciousness that breathes fire into the equations. So panpsychism is the view that consciousness goes right down to the fundamental building blocks of reality with fundamental particles such as electrons and quarks having incredibly rudimentary forms of conscious experience. And then the idea is that the very complex experience of the human or animal brain is somehow built up from these simpler forms of consciousness at the level of fundamental physics. So it doesn't necessarily mean that everything is conscious, despite what the word means. The word literally means everything mind. It means the basic building blocks of reality have some kind of very, very simple experience. But it doesn't mean every random combination of particles. So it might not mean, you know, tables and chairs and rocks and socks have consciousness It just means that the tiniest bits your socks are made of have some kind of very simple experience, if not the socks themselves. I think sometimes my socks seem to have a consciousness when I haven't washed them for a few days and they want to wander (laughs) off by themselves to the machine. Is panpsychism almost what some religions and cultures could call a soul? If indigenous Australians believe that everything has a soul, for example, to them Uluru, known as Ayers Rock, is a living being. Ayers Rock is built up of atoms that have this energy, that has this consciousness. Is, Is that along those lines? People do tend to associate panpsychism with spirituality or a spiritual conception of reality. Actually, though, there's 
in terms of panpsychism as it has emerged recently being taken much more seriously both in neuroscience and in academic philosophy it's not necessarily connected to anything spiritual or supernatural many people are turning to it just to try and find an, a scientific philosophically cogent explanation of consciousness this has proved such a deep enigma to science people are starting to look to more radical approaches to understand how the brain manages to produce the inner world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes that each of us enjoys every second of waking life this really is one of the great unsolved mysteries of contemporary science but having said that i think it can lead in a spiritual direction i think there's perhaps a little bit of a split in the contemporary panpsychist research community maybe a little bit like the split in the early psychoanalytic community between followers of freud and followers of jung so followers of jung were into archetypes and the collective unconscious and sort of spiritual elements whereas followers of freud thought that was all superstitious nonsense we needed to put behind us we need serious science similarly there are players on both sides of that divide in the panpsychist research community some of them do see a connection a support for a more spiritual conception of reality where something mystical pervades the universe whereas others are completely secular atheists and say no 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 that's all bunk but consciousness is real pleasure pain seeing red hearing sounds and we need an explanation of that and it's proved so difficult that we might need to look to more radical scientific options but that doesn't mean we we have to believe in all spiritual nonsense so there's a bit of a split there i find it very interesting that you're talking about this as a, a philosophical and a scientific question in one and and i'm wondering how the research takes place how are scientists working with philosophers to research these ideas of non-human consciousness it's a great question because i think we do need both science and philosophy working hand in glove if we're going to make progress on consciousness really i think the scientific task for a theory of consciousness is to try and work out which kinds of brain activity go along with which kinds of experience and this is very tricky because consciousness is not a publicly observable phenomenon i can't look inside your brain and see your feelings and experiences but if you're another human being which i think you are a brain scientist can ask you what you're experiencing and can scan your brain at the same time and try and work out which of your experiences go along with which patterns of neural firings in your brain so that's really the scientific task we call this tracking the neural correlates of consciousness which patterns of neural activity are correlated with consciousness but that's not everything we want from a theory of consciousness because ultimately we want an explanation of why why do certain kinds of brain activity go along with some kind of inner experience why should that happen at all and it's at that point where we have to turn to the philosophy and look at the various options philosophers have proposed as to why consciousness and the physical world come together in, in the ways that science has revealed or why they should come together at all and that's really a philosophical rather than a scientific question that's a fantastic answer and how do we transfer that 
to the non-human, to the material world? If we, if we haven't got that neuroscientific research, which we can do, how does that research then extend beyond the human? So the core of the philosophical question is the ancient challenge, which philosophers refer to as the mind-body problem, the challenge of how consciousness and the physical world connect up. And there are various options. Maybe it's the physical world that's fundamental and consciousness emerges from complicated processing in the brain. That's sometimes called the physicalist or the materialist option. The option I prefer though, the panpsychist option, turns that upside down. So instead of starting with the physical world and trying to get consciousness out, we start with consciousness and try to explain the emergence of physical reality itself from underlying facts about consciousness. So there's there's two explanatory projects here. Start with the physical world, try and get consciousness out. That has, despite many decades of serious time and effort being put into that, that project has sadly gone absolutely nowhere. And there are good philosophical reasons to think it's actually just not a coherent project. Whereas the panpsychist alternative of instead starting with consciousness and trying to account for the emergence of physical reality from underlying facts about consciousness turns out to be actually quite easy to do, surprisingly, and turns out to be just a much more tractable explanatory project. So that's why, despite the kind of weirdness, the seeming connection to strange spiritual ideas, more and more philosophers and even some neuroscientists are being drawn to this alternative panpsychist explanatory project for dealing with consciousness. Why is it easier to do? So this comes back to the influence of very important work from the 1920s by the philosopher and Nobel laureate Bertrand Russell, and also actually the scientist Arthur Eddington, who was also the first scientist to experimentally confirm Einstein's general theory of relativity. I think we should think of Russell as the Darwin of consciousness. He really solved all the mysteries, I think, in this area. So just to go into this in a little bit more depth. So in the 1920s, Russell was thinking really hard about the fact that physics, our most basic science, is purely mathematical. And this is something we kind of take for granted now, but this was actually a radical innovation of Galileo in the 17th century that from now on, our basic science of the universe was just going to be pure mathematics. Now, this is really useful if you're a practicing scientist, you can get very precise predictions. But Russell was thinking, what does it mean as a philosopher interested in the ultimate nature of reality? That our basic scientific understanding of ultimate reality is just purely mathematical. And what Russell realized is what it means is physics isn't really telling us much at all about what fundamental reality is. It's just describing its mathematical structure. And so as far as physics is concerned, fundamental reality could turn out to be anything. As long as it has the right mathematical structure, you're going to be able to get physics out of that. So contemporary Bertrand Russell-inspired panpsychists exploit this to try and make sense of their position. So the idea is what we have at the fundamental level of reality is networks of very simple conscious entities interacting in simple, predictable ways. And then through their interactions, they realize certain patterns, certain mathematical structures. And then the idea is those mathematical structures just are what we call physics. 
So we sort of get physics out of underlying facts about consciousness, about these simple conscious entities. We can't get consciousness out of physics, or no one's ever worked out any plausible way of doing that. But we can get physics out of consciousness. We know that can be done. Just finally, there's a, a nice line that captures this from the final page of A Brief History of Time, where Stephen Hawking said that even a final theory of physics would be just a set of rules and equations and wouldn't be able to tell us what breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe. So for the panpsychist, it's consciousness that breathes fire into the equations. And this gives us a remarkably simple and elegant way of solving the mind-body problem, of bringing together both the facts of physics and the facts of fundamental science and the reality of consciousness into a single unified theory of reality. So could consciousness be the energy that we know exists within atoms? That's the basic idea. So Russell's insight was, actually, physics isn't really telling us what matter and energy is. When I first heard that, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. You know, if you read a book of physics or cosmology, it seems to be giving you this rich story of the nature of space and time and, as you say, energy. But actually, it's, it's pretty uncontroversial among philosophers of physics that really what physics is giving us is, is more of a tool for prediction. It's giving us equations, rules, principles that tell us how matter and energy behave, what they do. And of course, that's very useful information. If you know in great detail what matter and energy do, you can manipulate the physical world and create incredible technology. But it's just telling us what stuff does. It's not really telling us what it is. Physics is a bit like playing chess when you don't know what the pieces are made of. You know what they do so you can play the game, but you don't know what they ultimately are. Physics tells us what an electron does, but not what it is. So this leaves, in a sense, a huge hole in our standard scientific story of the universe. So then Russell thinks, well, we're looking for a place for consciousness in our scientific story. We've got this big hole. Maybe we can put consciousness in the hole and we can bring together these two things we know about reality, the scientific truth and the undeniable reality of conscious experience that we know just from being conscious, from feeling pain, from seeing red, bring these two things together in a beautifully simple and elegant story, which feels a bit weird, but does the job. I think it's interesting if we look at recent research that explores, for example, trees and tree communication and forest ecosystems, we could argue that that's a form of collective consciousness. And can we go beyond that into what we see as inanimate matter? Is this related to your research? Absolutely. This is something I go into in more detail in, in my new book, Why the Purpose of the Universe. I mean, the research that's coming out recently on the intelligence and the sophistication of plants and trees is quite incredible. This is research that was mocked, rejected as sort of tree-hugging until it was scientifically established beyond doubt. There is a buzzing, blooming community under the ground with trees being connected up via mycelium fungi and even trees sharing information, older trees sharing information with younger trees. There's evidence that trees have a certain preference for helping their own kin. 
There's even cooperation across species with evergreen trees passing on nutrients to uh, trees that lose their leaves in the winter and reciprocation, quid pro quo, when it comes to summer. So, you know, absolutely fascinating. You think you know, humans struggle to sometimes to cooperate across ethnic boundaries, but these trees are managing to cooperate in a very sophisticated way across species boundaries. Yeah, I sometimes think how how much a deeper sense of nature we'd have if we if we walked through a forest and realized that this buzzing, blooming community and communication is going on beneath our feet. But yeah, I really think this does open us up much more to the possibility of trees being sentient or conscious. And if you, if you look at the trajectory, actually, it's been one of more and more things being accepted into, into the community of conscious entities. Descartes thought that animals were just basically mechanisms. Most people for a long time have accepted that mammals are conscious. But it's only recently that people have accepted that fish are conscious and that babies are conscious even. People used to doubt that. I think it's not going to be long before we accept trees are conscious. And do you think it might be scientifically possible, say with tree consciousness, if we accept trees as conscious, whether there would be eventually ways of trying to tap in and communicate with beings such as trees through this consciousness? Well, as we'd gain more just scientific understanding of plants and trees and understanding of their behavior and how they are expressing themselves beneath the surface as, as well as above the surface, there's been fascinating studies of key plants being subject to conditional learning. So there's the classic Pavlov's dog experiment where Pavlov managed to get a dog to associate the ringing of a bell with food by continuously associating them. And then the dog starts to salivate when uh, the bell rings. Well, we've managed to get pea plants to associate the humming of a computer fan with the particular kind of light that they feed off, such that the pea plant will, if we give them a sort of Y-shaped tube, it will ultimately grow towards the sound of a computer humming. So in some sense, the, the pea plant seems to have associated, learned to associate these two ideas. But I mean, we, we shouldn't get too carried away. It, it doesn't mean that trees have language, at least in the way human beings have language and abstract thought. And I think panpsychists try to stop us putting human consciousness in terms of our understanding of consciousness in general. So humans are apt to, to wrap up what consciousness means with our particular kind of consciousness involving a capacity for abstract thought and language. But I think consciousness in, in the biological world and perhaps the universe more generally comes in very different shapes and sizes and doesn't necessarily fit into the, the human model of experience. So we've heard that pea plants are responsive and therefore potentially conscious, but in a way that is different from our experience. Panpsychism involves removing ourselves, humans, from the centre of the universe. And I'm wondering, why do we find it hard to make the philosophical leap to imagine consciousness beyond ourselves? Well, 
Well, firstly, I mean, a lot has changed in recent times. For a lot of the 20th century, scientists and philosophers basically just pretended consciousness didn't exist. We have the behaviorist movement who said the only acceptable study for a science of mind is external behavior because consciousness is this weird invisible thing that's not properly scientific. But since the 1990s, it has been accepted that consciousness is real, surprise, surprise. And there's a serious scientific challenge here of trying to account for it. And then more recently, I think people have started to see that the philosophical underpinnings of this challenge, because consciousness is not a publicly observable phenomenon, this is not something we're going to address just by doing more experiments, as important as experiments are, we also need to bring in the philosophers as well as the scientists. And people have become open to much more radical options, panpsychism on the one hand. There are other scientists and philosophers who adopt a perhaps even stranger position that consciousness is a kind of illusion, a trick played on us by the brain, and we're not really conscious, at least not in the way we ordinarily think of ourselves. To address your question, I think Humans always think they're at the end of history. They always get stuck in these patterns of thought. It's a little bit like in the uh, 16th century where we started to get evidence that we weren't in the center of the universe. And people struggled to accept that because it didn't fit with the picture of reality they'd got used to. And nowadays you, you hear popular science programs scoff at these people. They are those stupid religious people. Why couldn't they just follow the evidence? But I think every generation absorbs a worldview it can't see beyond. And I think that's been the same with the challenges of consciousness and panpsychism. But fortunately, I think we are seeing a generation coming up now who don't have those pre-established commitments and, and we are starting to see rapid change, I think. If we're thinking about those issues, you know, we've always, as humans, used art to make sense of these most complex ideas and philosophies. And do you think that's why Beyond Human Consciousness has appeared in popular culture through Star Wars or Philip Pullman creating his own version of this in the hugely popular His Dark Materials novels, which he called Dust? Has popular culture and art been the way where science ignored these ideas, humans could discuss it? Absolutely. I mean, partly it depends what you're trying to do. If you're just trying to study consciousness itself, if you're trying to study what it's like to be a human being from the inside, I wouldn't ask a scientist or a philosopher. I'd read some literature, watch some films, read James Joyce. That really conveys the first-person experience of a human being. And art and culture really does have a role to play. I've had some great interactions with the novelist Philip Pullman, actually. And one thing that's fascinating about his work is the way he's drawn on, on science and philosophy in constructing his stories. The notion of dust that permeated his, uh, his Dark Material series was inspired by thinking about dark matter, by thinking about the Higgs boson, and also by, by thinking about panpsychism. I mean, I first thought about this, actually, reading one of the books from his Dark Materials, The Subtle Knife, where we have Murray, the scientist, who finds this strange way of communicating with dust particles, or shadows, as she calls them. She asks the dust particles, are you what we call spirit? And the particles reply, and this is where my ears really pricked up, I mean, they're not actually talking to her, but they reply, from what we are, spirit, 
from what we do matter. Matter and spirit are one. And this really struck me because that really sums up this Bertrand Russell inspired style of panpsychism that's recently making waves in academic philosophy. So what can this study of consciousness offer to the other fields of scientific study? Can it liberate them from, in inverted commas, rational excess? I mean, ultimately, we should be aiming not at the view we'd like to be true, but that the view that's most likely to be true. But actually, I mean, I think the great thing about panpsychism is that it does both, really. It's I think there's a good case for the probable truth of panpsychism as the best explanation of how consciousness and the physical world fit together. But I think panpsychism also offers a, a picture of the universe in, in which we fit in, in which we have a place on panpsychism. We are conscious creatures in a conscious universe. So in panpsychism, but you know, in, in a way, both our intellectual and our spiritual yearnings find a home. But yeah, I think you're right. I think all of these things have their place. I mean, ultimately, science is based on experience. You can only find out the results of experiments by using your own conscious experience. We can't get outside of our consciousness to see what the world is like. Some philosophers, like the great 19th century philosopher and psychologist William James, have argued that Along similar lines of reasoning, this should allow us, it can be rationally permissible to take mystical experiences seriously. James said, well, you know, if you say it's okay to take our basic empirical experiences seriously as a guide to reality when we do science, but it's not okay for the mystic to take her mystical experiences seriously as a guide to reality, there's a kind of double standard there. You know, in both cases, they could be delusions, who knows? We could be in the Matrix. It could all be a dream. But standardly, we take it to be okay to trust our ordinary mundane experiences when we're finding out about reality. So why shouldn't we also, at least tentatively, take our mystical or spiritual experiences seriously? And that's led some panpsychists to find in panpsychism a way of bringing all these things together. Although I hasten to add many other panpsychists reject all this uh, mystical experience stuff as just pre-scientific nonsense so there's a bit of a <laughs> bit of an argument to be had there We're in an exciting time in which philosophy and science are making huge strides to understand a richer concept of what it means to be human and alive. This can teach us a greater humility if we understand that we share the experience of consciousness with all the matter that surrounds us. So I might not have much luck persuading the remote control to fly through the air towards me, but perhaps the pea plant can pass it. That's all from us today on why. Thank you to Professor Philip Goff, Thank you so much. It's been a really lovely conversation. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition. And follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Luke Turner asking... Why? See you next time. Why? was written and presented by Luke Turner. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. 
The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production.